this for a, a really good while. Um, Amber Cantorna hails all the way from Denver, Colorado. You're not used to this kind of uh, brisk weather here, are you? I know it's been tough on you. Um, but Amber, would you please come and join me? And would you, as Grace Point, give her a really warm welcome? So you are in town. Would you rather have this short? Is that a little odd, awkward? You good? I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Don't fall off and run the night for everybody. I know. Um, you are in town with your wife, Clara. Right there. Uh, right there. Everybody wave. Um, <laughs> and you are here uh, at Parnassus Books brought you in to... Um, Hawk, that book of yours that you wrote. How That's long ago was, did you write that? It just released in October. Oh, really? And the publisher was? Fortress Press. Fortress Press. That's the Lutheran folk? Or I think it's the Lutheran folk. They did a lot of academic work before um, we're kind of moving more into this realm of memoirs, and they call it Theology for the People, so they're releasing a lot of memoir work now. Yeah, uh, what Frederick Buechner said, uh, two-thirds of all theology is autobiography. And that's especially true for those of us who are incarnational believers in Christ. So, um, so you, do you know about Grace Point? What's your connection to Grace Point? How did you find us? Well, we're very familiar with Grace Point because I go to Highlands Church in Denver. Oh, Mark Tidd. Yes. Yeah, my good friend. Yes. Am I okay here? I feel like I'm cutting in and out. Is she of course I am. Out? All right. I'm, I'm going to give her mine. Do you mind the handheld? Not at all. Okay. We've been having problems with this. We, we are starting to believe in spiritual <laughs> so, um, Amber Cantorna is who? Um, talk to us about your background, where you grew up. Much of the book is a bit, not an expose, but a memoir related to your experience of growing up in the world that I very much know. I was born in 68, an evangelical child of the 70s and cut my teeth on the moral majority Christian coalition. Uh, the two chief issues for us and God were, of course, abortion and sexuality, particularly homosexuality, so I'm well acquainted. I, I grew up my entire life with James Dobson in my home, uh, the books and um, the discipline, everything was James Dobson in our home. So talk to us a little about uh, who is Amber Cantorn and what this book is all about. So I grew up uh, the homeschooled daughter of a 30-year executive at Focus on the Family. My dad started working there back when they were still in Pasadena, California, before they had even moved to Colorado Springs. And so we trekked from Montana, where I was born, and we moved down to LA area, and he started working there. And then, of course, when they migrated to Colorado Springs in 91, we moved there as well. So I grew up really kind of encased in a Christian bubble um, Colorado Springs is known a lot for being very Christian-based, having the headquarters of a lot of Christian ministries there, um, being very heavily homeschooled population, and so that was kind of the world that I knew and grew up in and kind of all that existed to me because I was not exposed to any outside um, influences, really not exposed to any diversity of any kind, uh, whether that was racial or different religious um, practices, different disabilities, certainly sexual orientation, was all very foreign to me. I really knew nothing else outside of this kind of uh, 
encased bubble that I grew up in. And my dad still works there to this day, so they are still very much entrenched in those values in Colorado Springs. I have since moved to Denver since coming out, uh, but that's still very much a part of my family and who we've been for a very long time. For those, um, how many of you are familiar when I even, I, we just assume here that you know Focus on the Family. Do you know Focus on the Family? How many do not, not. know what we're talking about when we talk about the organization Focus on the Family? Would you mind? Okay, so Just a couple. explain Focus on the Family. So Focus on the Family was based by, uh, or was founded by James Dobson. He's no longer affiliated with them, but he's still known for being the founder of it. And it's primarily a very um, ultra-conservative, Christian-based organization that focuses primarily, ironically, on family values and uh, parenting, marriage, that kind of thing. And so my dad's been very involved in um, in in the work that they've done for many, many years. He's in a pretty prominent position there. So that's primarily what they're known for. And unfortunately, like you said, the two hot button issues, abortion and homosexuality, are kind of what they're known for um, taking a really strong stance on still to this day. So is your father a minister? Um, what is his background? No, his background, he actually didn't even grow up Christian. He grew up Catholic and didn't become Christian until he was 19. Um, and so this kind of all, I mean, my parents, neither of them even went to college. So this is something he kind of fell into and grew into. Now, as here, we actually believe Catholics are Christians here. So <laughs> when you... Um, no, uh, as do I. Yeah. Um, so he was from a Catholic background, came into the evangelical... Evangelical Christianity, Yeah, correct. evangelical Christianity, which... Um, um, so he came into that. You were how old when he began working for Focus on the I Family? I was three years old. Oh, so the, you cut your teeth. This was your world. Yes, this was all I knew for a very, very long time. Uh, so I, I'll stay out of the way. Just tell us your story. We want to hear. We're big on stories here. We've got an entire service Steve talked about at the beginning uh, of our service uh, dedicated to stories. So Tell us your story. When did you begin to know that something was different and it was not aligned with your dad's world? And Well, I knew, I think from a young age, that I was different to some degree. But I wasn't able to pinpoint what that difference was because I wasn't exposed to diversity. So I didn't have that kind of public school experience of being able to identify with these different kind of minority groups or different experiences, which really kept me um, shadowed a lot, I think, from being able to identify my sexual orientation. That and the thing that I was also very heavily entrenched in purity culture. So I grew up in the world of Joshua Harris and I Kissed Dating Goodbye and True Love Waits and marriages between one man and one woman. And I had the whole purity ceremony at the age of 13 where all my friends and family came in in this huge like coming into womanhood ceremony where that was kind of what was expected of me um, in, a, in a sense and also just what, um, not, I mean I, I did it because it was expected but I also did it because I truly genuinely wanted to please God and that was part of pleasing God with your life and honoring God was to do these things. So I signed this covenant of um, staying pure until I was married and not having sex before I was married and wore this purity ring on my hand um, that was supposed to stay there until the day that I got married to a man and replaced it with my wedding ring. I led probably 10 purity ceremonies <laughs> and hundreds of kids and the, the idea was that we were going to make this commitment these were like 12 14 15 year old kids making this commitment mm -hmm. and there was there was always this idea it was very patriarchal because always our young ladies were going to give that ring to their husband on the, the wedding, wedding day. day correct it was kind of like a dowry exchange mm -hmm. of her purity mm -hmm. and i think in the 10 years the megachurch that i was at uh, i presided over 10 of those 
ceremonies in a seven-year period, probably three to 400 kids, and I saw one ring exchanged finally in a wedding ceremony, and I think they actually were fibbing a little bit, but <laughs> um, the shame and the guilt yes. that was layered on these children with this false expectation was immense. And I see that a lot, not even, you don't even have to be gay to have that, right? So a lot of straight couples even would either get married too quickly because they didn't want to mess it up, basically, so they'd get married before they should, um, or they would slip up and have sex before they were married and then carry that guilt into what would have otherwise been a very healthy marriage. And so the amount of guilt and shame it puts on um, people, and, and not only that, but the, the amount of weight that it carries for females to kind of dress modestly and like, like it was our responsibility to keep the men from lusting, and it was always put on the female to have that responsibility in the way that they dressed and the way they presented themselves. Um, so there was a huge amount of shame and guilt around all that that I think most people carry to a great degree. Why the book? Why the book? Well, for so many reasons, um, what I've found through sharing my story is that it's not just my story. Uh, there are so many people across the, the states and even around the world. I mean, I've heard from people in Greenland, from the Arctic, and South Africa, and Australia that are all saying, um, I feel like I'm reading my own story. And so what I tried to do was, rather than take a theological debate, because there's been many people that have written uh, really good books that already have done that and kind of taken the scriptures and done the theology piece, I wrote it um, instead of as a memoir of telling my story, because I wanted people to to be able to relate to the story. I wanted them to find themselves in the story. And so I wrote it with uh, LGBT people in mind, specifically, that they would be able to kind of find themselves within the story and have a beacon of hope that they're not alone or as isolated as they feel. And then also to really reach the parents and the family members and the friends of those LGBT people because I want them to also um, take it from kind of this hot political topic or you know theological debate down to a real human story, a real person. Um, and if we can do that, I think it's really stories that change hearts and lives and really influence people. And so the more that we can tell our stories, the more we can make it personable and relatable, the more I think we're able to really make change in the world. And so my hope is that they'll find, you know, they'll find themselves within the themes of whether that's focus on the family or Dobson or Adventures and Odyssey or purity culture or homeschooling or whatever those themes are, that they'll find themselves within it and be able to relate to the story and have that kind of be a catalyst for change. How, how old were you when you um, began coming out to yourself and then juxtapose that, how long did it take you to move from being honest with yourself to the moment when you finally came out to your parents? Well, I fell in love with my female roommate when I was 23, which was not how that was supposed to go at all. And so that was kind of the beginning of a wake-up call for me, because I really didn't see it coming. I had been so kind of blinded to my own sexuality because of purity culture and this idea that if you just save yourself someday, your knight in shining armor is going to come down on a white horse and rescue you. And so that was kind of what I just kept waiting for and was really not uh, even aware because I hadn't been exposed to LGBT people. It was kind of always that other that was kind of as far out there as um, possible and you don't actually associate with them. You just pray for them from a distance. <laughs> so it was really um, 
not until I fell in love with my female roommate that it was just such a huge wake-up call, and I did not know what to do with that. And I started wrestling at that point and didn't really even know where to start with the wrestling because I had no um, kind of link to latch on to. And so it was, it was probably about a five-year process between the beginning of that and when I finally came out, just because I wrestled with it at such an intense level um, that I, I had to keep working through it because it was taking me on this downward spiral of depression and, and um, anxiety and, and just all these dark places that I started going to because this group that I had been kind of subliminally taught to hate all my life was suddenly inside of me and was who I was coming to be. And so then, you know, when you're taught to hate something else and that something becomes you, you start hating yourself. And so I turned that inward and that turned into um, self-injury and suicidal ideations and all these things. And, and so that really forced me to look this fear in the face and really grapple with it because if I didn't, it was going to be the thing that killed me. How long was the theological process for you to make peace and did you uh, suffer through reparative therapy and did you try all of that? Um, I did not do with it reparative therapy only because um, I didn't outwardly tell my parents about it. That They would have wanted that for me. In fact, when I did come out to them formally, they, they said, you know, we wish we could have helped you, meaning reparative therapy, love one out, something like that. And so I would have been, I think, more pressured into that had I included them in the process. But when, they, when I actually had the situation with my roommate, they found out about it. And of course, it, it, it blew up, kind of, and, and, but they brushed it under the rug as kind of this big secret we don't want to tell anybody. And so they just said, um, don't ever tell anybody about this, because if you do, it will ruin your reputation forever. And so I didn't tell anybody, and I just hid it away deeper and deeper inside of me and um, wrestled in isolation. And so that was a really personal journey that I went on, more than a public one. I really had no one to talk to during that time. And so I did the best I could to kind of grapple at whatever resources were available, which isn't near as much as what's available now. We've got some great resources now, but at the time, um, there really wasn't a whole lot available. So it took me a span of, you know, a good three to five years to kind of work through all that internally. So by the time you made peace with yourself, then the next step is to have the sit down with your parents. Could you tell us that story? Sure. So once I came into kind of accepting who I was, I knew that I couldn't keep it a secret. Uh, my parents and family and I, we all lived within a couple miles of each other. We were all very close. We talked on a daily basis. We were all very intertwined. So there was no way to really keep it a secret for an extended period of time. Um, nor did I want to because living a lie was so exhausting. To live in that divided world where you feel like you constantly have to filter, you constantly have to think about what you're saying, you constantly have to do these things to make other people comfortable all the while you're dying inside. And it just got to the point where I knew I couldn't do it. And so I started kind of prepping to come out to my family. I knew it was coming sooner and sooner and kind of preparing myself. And I thought it would be anything from them kind of agreeing to disagree to full on um, disowning me. I thought it, but I thought it would be somewhere in the middle. I really didn't think it would be either extreme. I just thought it would be kind of somewhere in the middle of those two. And um, so I knew it could cost me everything, but I was not prepared for the fact that it actually would. And as I got ready to tell my parents, I sat them down one day in my apartment and my brother was in town. And so the three of us sat and I told them kind of the journey that I had been on. 
And I was careful to tell them also like the journey that I had been on with God because I knew that would be their biggest fear was, was my soul and my faith and my relationship with God. So I tried hard to kind of weave that into what I was telling them. Um, but I don't think they heard a word that I said. It just, they just glazed over and were very, um, I think they knew what was coming. And so finally I got the words out there and I told them that I was gay and it just kind of hung in the air. I was 27, 27, and so um, I, I just told them, and it just kind of hung in the air as I waited for the response, and it was by far the most vulnerable I've ever felt in my life, and I waited for them to say something, and my dad just looked at me, and he said, I have nothing to say to you right now, and he got up and walked out the door, and I didn't hear from them for about three weeks after that, and when I did, it was worse, not better. You would think they'd kind of had some time to calm down or kind of um, see things from my point of view or try to understand, but um, instead they compared me to murderers and to pedophiles and bestiality and, um, you know, we feel like you've died. Uh, how dare you do this to the family and do what makes you happy and not think about how that would impact us. And of course that had, was all I had thought about for, you know, months leading up to it was how this was going to change our family forever. And, and that was, I think, a big fear of why I was kind of waiting for the right time to do it because I knew it was going to change things. And so I just, I kept prepping myself, but, but it, you know, the, that whole conversation was just so brutal. And, um, you know, they called me selfish and they'd, I'd rather you turn your back on God and be gay than to be gay and pretend that everything between you and God is okay. And so it was just this really brutal conversation that went down further and further and ended with them taking away the keys to their house and saying they no longer felt me, that they no longer trusted me to have access to their home. And so that was really kind of how it ended on that note that day and uh, was pretty dark. So, it, I mean, it, and it didn't really get better after that. It just kind of went on a journey of very tense conversations. Um, I wanted so desperately to prove to them that I was same, still the same, that I was still the same daughter, that, um, that I hadn't changed. I still wanted so desperately to belong and to be loved by them. And so I tried hard to just kind of stay very stable and just really be in that moment and, and be as present as I could um, through the family interactions that we had in the months that followed. Uh, but that was very, very hard because they constantly would tell me how much they disapproved of, of my lifestyle or of my choices and how much I was embarrassing them. And um, especially my dad with his position at Focus, he'd say, um, I'm so embarrassed by this. You know, I've got this position at Focus and, and what you're doing now is an embarrassment to me and to all the thousands of fans that I've reached over the years. And, and so I just slowly felt pushed and ostracized more and more. Um, both by their words and they also had some very passive-aggressive behavior that just really pushed me to the fringes and ostracized me more and more from the family. That was how many years ago? That is, I've been out almost six years. And has it softened? Are you still in the same place with your parents? Uh, it is, for, we had about two and a half, three years of tension where it was uh, this kind of trying to find a place where we could mutually live. Um, but they were in a place where they would refuse to even agree to disagree. In their eyes, that was still the same as condoning the behavior. And it took me a long time to realize that I think what in their mind that does is by me accepting my sexuality, they really believe my soul is in jeopardy and that I'm going to hell. And I think in their minds, for them to agree to disagree and in their mind condone that behavior is also putting their soul in jeopardy of hell. 
for them to even associate with me. And so they wouldn't even be in that space. And I think leading up to the time that, um, I was single when I came out, but then I started dating Clara, who's now my wife, about a year after that. And up until that time, as we were dating, even when we got engaged, I think they were still hoping for me to change, hoping for me to come around, for me to change. And when we got married, that kind of solidified it for them and put, that was like kind of final. And so it was shortly, I had no family at my wedding whatsoever. And shortly after my wedding is when they cut me off completely and we haven't spoken since. So it's been about three and a half years. And this is, this is an executive of a Focus. ministry that focuses on the family. Isn't that ironic? And creates the <laughs> virtuous family. And yet, um, this is not something that is um, uh, unbeknownst to us. You're looking at folk in many ways who have lived this story mm-hmm. to a yeah. T. You're simply yep. articulating their story for them. Yeah. So three and a half years, no contact. Um, why the book and what is the, I, I wanna open up for some questions and for some interaction. But why the book, and if there was a central motif and heartbeat to the book, what is it? What are you saying? The heartbeat of the book is really to give hope to those people like me. Because as hard as it's been to lose everything, which it really, for me, was everything. It wasn't just my parents. All of my extended family turned their back on me. A good majority of my friends, I can count on one hand the number of friends that are still in my life after coming out. Um, My church that I had been a part of for 15 years, um, and and really the only hometown that I'd ever known because I ended up moving to Denver. I lost everything and just had to start up from nothing. And so it really, for me, the heartbeat of the book is reaching people like that because unless you know somebody else or you've um, somehow come across one of these ministries, you feel so isolated inside that kind of Christian cocoon and have no idea that other people out there are experiencing the same journey, the same story, the same struggles. And so really to give them kind of a story to latch onto and a beacon of hope because even in the midst of everything that I've lost, um, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. I feel more free. I feel more at peace. I feel more at home in my own skin. Um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I really, I would never go back to the life I had before. Um, it, it just, it's not worth it. And so that's really the heartbeat of the book, as well as to help family understand the journey that we're going through, the struggles that we're going through, the things that we're facing, and hopefully help them um, learn to love a little better. Uh, 12th century Saint Godric. Um, said what's lost is nothing compared to what's found. Mm -hmm. And all the death that could ever be, if it were pulled together, could scarcely fill a cup set next to the river of life that now runs in me. So, you know, as you're talking, um, there's a lot of loss in this. Does Clara come from a similar background? Similar in some ways, yeah. Her family is a little bit more on board. We do have some contact with them, but... Um, but it's been a journey. She came from Fundamental Baptist, so um, still, you know. Independent Fundamental Baptist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, similar journey in many ways. (laughs) Salute. They were all at our wedding, though, which was pretty amazing. Her family did come. Yeah, yeah, they all came to the wedding. Yeah, your family's position, of course, um, focus on the family, had had deep Wesleyan Nazarene roots, and there was that potential to lose salvation and all of that. But we had text, um, there were texts that I taught that would have um, resonated with your parents' actions towards you. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 
Paul said, it's reported commonly that there's a young man living among you that is involved in sexual immorality. And Paul said, and you haven't grieved that he that has done this deed might be removed from you. But I verily as absent in body, see, I can still quote all of this. I've preached it for years. I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already concerning this young man who's done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together with my spirit there, Paul said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved. I wrote to you in a previous letter, with such a one, do not even eat. You misunderstood me, he said, and thought I was talking about the sexually immoral people of the world. But he said, I wasn't referring to them, or else you would have to go out of the world. They're not Christians. But Paul said, if anyone, here it is, if anyone calls themselves a Christian and lives such a life with such a one, do not even eat. We had a biblical undergirding, a theological underpinning. We had texts that were incredibly clear where entire congregations were called to do this onerous mission of delivering a human soul, our own daughters and sons, to deliver them to Satan and to hope that they would have some kind of a hog pen experience where they would hit uh, recovery language, rock bottom that is forced upon them by a church removing its covering of protection and giving Satan dispensation and access to them. And, but the central point was um, it was sexual immorality in this young man's life. And as long as the church sees same-sex attraction and same-sex love as sinful, then the evangelical church who takes scripture seriously is going to have you know, these texts to do exactly in the name of Jesus to you. That's why for um, our congregation, the LGBT issue and matter was a piece of a much larger mosaic. Um, progressive Christianity is being pressed by incarnational realities just like this one, but this is only one of several, pressing us to revisit our entire worldview, not just the way we see uh, sexuality or homosexuality or bisexuality, but the way we see sexuality in general. And then not only the way we see sexuality in general, but the way we see humanity in general. And then the way we see God in general. It just um, has tentacles that intertwines into everything. And I'm sure that's been your journey. Um, would you mind if we take Not some questions no. and, and maybe comments from Absolutely. the crowd? If it, uh, keep them brief so we can kind of get through as many as possible. But some of you have had this experience and um, have, are resonating. Would you want to maybe, um, you got a microphone? Would you want to talk a little bit to Amber, ask her questions? Somebody lead the way. Hi, I'm Kelsey. I actually messaged you this week. Hi, Kelsey. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, I read your book few days ago, and uh, it is my story. Um, and I still really struggle with my parents' rejection. It's not quite as drastic as yours, but it really hurts. Yeah. Especially around holidays. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is pretty broad, but I was wondering what keeps you going when it really hurts. Because mm. I know like faith and sexuality for me is still like really weird and intertwined, mm -hmm. and I have mm -hmm. like, so I was just wondering, you know, when you feel pain about it, what do you do? I think latching on to a community like this makes a big difference. I know for me, you know, our, our church in Denver has been 
kind of the the rock for us as we, you know, the day when I had no family at my wedding, when we've done these different like turning points in my life, it's been those people in the church that have come in and helped kind of bridge that gap. And it doesn't take away all the pain, like there's still an emptiness there, but it does help. It does help kind of navigate it a little easier. It does help you kind of move through that. Um, so I think having that community base around you really makes a big difference. And I know the holidays are hard. I mean, that's something that I've continued to struggle with ongoing, like, because the holidays were always such a meaningful time for us. But I think in time, like, we were just talking about this last Christmas, how uh, it was just my wife and I on Christmas Day, it was just the two of us, but for some reason it just felt different, and we just felt grounded, really in our own family for the first time. Like, in years past, I still had always felt this emptiness there, but for some reason this year just felt different, and we just felt grounded and solid in, in our own family, and, and that was really special and meaningful because... I know, I mean, holidays are hard, uh, whether it's Christmas or Father's Day or Mother's Day, and you know, everybody's calling family or getting calls from family and you don't, it's hard. So um, I think clinging to your relationship and, and building a strong community around you really makes a big difference. What did the Psalmist David said, God literally takes the solitary and sets them in family. Family, sets the lonely That's in families. a lovely, yeah. God sets yeah. the lonely, the solitary in family. So a church is, indispensable. We always said um, friends are the family that you didn't choose. Mm -hmm. It's really sad sometimes when family becomes the enemies that you also didn't choose. Well, and my mom always told me growing up, Amber, friends will come and go, but your family will always be there for you. Not so much, right? So my family has not been there when I've needed them the most, and my friends have been the ones that have stood in the place where my family should have been, and that's made a big difference for me. Others? Any questions? I do think mental health is a lot uh, more openly talked about at our church. We've got a ministry called the Wellbeings Ministry, and they kind of um, do workshops that are based around the whole person, whether that's spiritual or physical or uh, mental, financial, all these kind of different aspects. So we've had everything from like financial planning to like end of life planning to, um, I'm not sure if we've had one on self-injury yet, I know we mentioned it, to like foster care to, you know, so all these different things, um, couples and counseling. So it's been really nice to have kind of this well-rounded approach where really nothing's off limits. And, um, I did one there one time on grief and um, kind of the experience of losing um, family and friends through coming out and how to handle that. So I feel like it is a lot more openly accepted there and uh, able to be kind of discussed in an open manner. And a lot of that, not that everything is gone um, now that I'm, I mean, I'm in such a great place. It's not like everything just instantly goes away, but it does resolve itself because you feel at peace and you're so happy that some of the issues that I struggled with, um, some of them, you know, continue to be present there, but things like self-injury and those things that came from this inner self-loathing that I had really just dissipate because you're, you're finally able to accept who you are, you're happy in who you are, um, and you're in a place where you're not in a toxic environment. I think keeping yourself in a toxic environment with people who are unaffirming is going to perpetuate a lot of that stuff. But if you're able to be in a place where you're fully embraced and you're affirmed in your community, then it, 
being gay just becomes a natural part of life. I mean, when we're with our friends, we don't think, well, this is our gay friend and this is our straight friend. We're just all friends or we're married or we're single and it doesn't matter anymore. It's not a, such a huge identifier as it is when you're in a, in a non-affirming environment. So I think it makes a big difference having an affirming community, a place where you can bring all of yourself and nothing's off limits. These kinds of books, these kind of memoir books are so important. I mean, the theological treatises are also incredibly important. Um, but you have a few of these? I have. <laughs> I apologize that we were not able to get a bunch of books here for this event tonight. We have five books for the first five people that want to buy a book. <laughs> Cash credit charge. I will sign them for you. $73.99. <laughs> I think there are 23 for the first five people, and I apologize that that's all we have is five tonight, but i um, happy to sign them for you, or if you've brought your own for whatever reason, I'm happy to sign them as have well. Have you met Don Bennett? Have yes. You, all, you, you yes. have met. Don wrote a great book that I read over a year ago called Loving Pearl, mm -hmm. and it's very similar, uh, A Mother's Call to Unconditional Love. Don, do you have anything maybe to add? You were at our support group earlier. Stand, stand and take the microphone there. Group, the support group was fabulous. Um, no, I do think that it is important uh, for us to tell our story. Um, I, I think what what is difficult for me is that uh, this story took place in um, this particular part of the country, and uh, but it doesn't change the fact that there's not enough voices out there. Um, because what, what I teach and preach on is um, the things that the, the heinous crimes against the children of God that we participate in in the name of God and Jesus, right? Um, love gets very skewed and it gets very um, tainted. Gets a lot of colors in there. Thing people don't understand. Um, I think that when you have that personal experience, everybody around you then has an opinion and you have a decision. I know for me, my decision was an easy one. Um, I have gay siblings, so my decision was, was easy to accept my then daughter. I'm working on a sequel called Loving Logan, or Lo Logan's Ladder, because my child has since transitioned, right? And so it's complicated, because I will tell you, it's very different being the parent of um, a gay child than a transgender child. There's a lot of things that I worry about and I think about that I never had to before. Um, and now being in ministry, it's complicated even more. <laughs> but the story is the same. It's the story of love, right? It's a story of love. I really feel like this is going to sound harsh, um, but I, I really feel this way more and more that a message, a message rooted in God that does to you what was done to you, I personally believe that that is theological religious terrorism. And terrorism is a hot-button word these days, but I can't think of a more appropriate word to elicit. You were 27 and more psychologically capable. Children are being terrorized on this level 
at 11 and 12 and 14 and 16 years old. And we don't have to belabor the reality. We are well aware here at the church of the exaggerated suicide rates, homelessness mm -hmm. rates. It, it is wrong. It is terrorism. It is abuse. And it literally borders on the criminal. It is not only unethical and immoral, it borders on the criminal. If cyberbullying, if people are now being held accountable, complicit and accountable uh, for what happens to a person after they're bullied, this is religious bullying. Now, am I saying the people intend that? No, I was one of them. I feel like I feel like Paul looking back at myself as Saul of Tarsus saying, I persecuted the church. And Paul said, I suppose the only reason God had mercy on me is because God knew that I was doing it sincerely. I thought I was on God's side doing God's work and God had mercy on me. But at some point, if that's true, the light has got to shine round about you. You've got to get knocked off of the donkey and you have got to say, who are you, Lord? And, and you have got to hear God say, I am Jesus, I am a gay child whom thou persecutest. Knowest now thou not that it is hard for you to kick, kick against the goads. At some point, it, we just, we cannot hide behind, this is religious conviction. The details and the science is in, and it is beyond unethical, immoral, it is bordering on the criminal. And I'm grateful for you, and I'm grateful to serve in a church um, like this. I am a cisgendered heterosexual, but I have experienced a touch. My father told me that he would have rather me been gay because as a man of God, I'm going to be held much deeper, and the punishment will be more for, severe for me for being complicit and leading people astray. So... Um, it's an amazing thing to hear your father say to you, I would rather you have rejected God mm -hmm. because then it would make sense that you were living this lifestyle. Right. It's astonishing. We're passionate about this around here. Very passionate. Very passionate about the suicide rates too because the rates of suicide are higher for people that are rejected from their families because they're gay than for just about anybody else. It's yeah. just atrocious and I was so close to that myself and in fact my parents would tell me well how selfish of you to be suicidal like what's wrong with you to think that you're suicidal that's like my, my mom actually said to me she's like that's like your dad going out and having an adulterous affair and then saying he was suicidal because I wouldn't accept the fact that he was living in adultery she's like are you kidding me like this is the most selfish thing for you to do to say that you're suicidal because we won't accept you for being gay so it, it's it really, the, the suicide rates and what it's causing, you know, inside of these um, LGBT people who are being rejected is just, um, it's just atrocious, the things that are being done in the name of God. Yep. Others? I think we had another question somewhere. There's one here. Um, I was just wondering if you'd like to talk about the law and the There wasn't a lot out for parents then, like there is now. There's you know a handful of really good resources for parents. I would have if they would have been open to it, but they were very clearly not. Um, that day when when we got together and they um, had compared me to murderers and pedophiles and all that, they had this book, of course, that they had found of some guy that had been supposedly healed through ex-gay therapy, and they wanted me to read it. And I said, well, how about this? 
I'll read one of your books if you read one of mine. And without hesitation, my dad was like, nope, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> well, I'm sorry then, I'm not gonna read it. And that was as far as it got. Here and then Stephen. Hi, I just have a quick question, I'm Leandra. Uh, I moved down here to the south from New York and Portland, Oregon. And so my experience of being out, I came out when I was 20 and I'm 34 now, so, you know, there's like, I've been very lucky, I think, compared to other people's stories. But the culture shock of moving to the South and being gay and What'd getting stared at constantly. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's been a real transition. So yeah. I'm just curious, you said you heard from people all over the North and the South and internationally. I mean, is this primarily a Christian problem and is it worse in the South because it's, you know, the quote, Bible Belt and, you know, that kind of thing because my, the the temperature, like, I don't know who I can come out to down here. Mm -hmm. You know, I was literally asked in an interview, you know, like, are you in a relationship? Uh, and I said, yes, I am. Well, what does he do? I said, well, she, you know, and they just looked at me like, what, you know? <laughs> but like, sorry guys, deal. <laughs> you know? But, you know, so I'm just curious, what is your take as you've spoken to people since your book has come out? What's it like? What are you hearing? What's the feedback? Well, I think it's primarily, the people that I'm hearing from are primarily evangelical Christians um, from all over the nation. I don't know that it's worse in the Bible Belt other than the fact that you're more isolated in the Bible Belt. It's harder to come out. It's hard. I mean, when we were, we had an event in Raleigh in November and we had two girls that drove over four hours to come see us because they were so desperate for a beacon of hope. And so I think it's, it's worse in the Bible Belt in the fact that you don't have as much support. It's harder to come out, it's harder to find that than it would be in Oregon or Boston or New York. Um, so I think that's what we're seeing, but I'm hearing this story coast to coast. It's, it's an evangelical Christian problem. And it's not just evangelical, I mean, it, this happens in every religion, obviously. I mean, it's, it's not just a Christian problem. This is happening in all different religions. But my heart is, you know, deepest for the evangelical Christians, because that's where I come from. And so, but I mean, I've heard from people in South Africa and Australia and France, and they're, you know, my father works at Compassion, and he's stationed down here, or we're missionaries to Europe, or this or that. So it still is kind of germinating from the states and going out worldwide. And so it's, it's a problem all over, I think, um, just based on um, their experience inside evangelical Christianity. If we look at two rates, the growth or lack thereof in Christianity and the matter of LGBTQ inclusion in Christianity, Christianity is diminishing numerically more rapidly than we are becoming inclusive on this issue, which if we don't become inclusive on this issue, we deserve and need to be diminishing rapidly because we are an averse religion that needs to die and be recreated. And people are shocked by me saying that, but our religion is based on someone who died and it was an incredibly important death. And if our religion doesn't get this right, then it needs to go away. It simply needs to go away. So uh, we keep waiting for tipping points. Um, the church that you attend, Mark Tidd, is a hero of mine. 
I was reading Mark's stuff for three years trying to build up the courage to do what we did here. When Mark did it, he was on all the news agencies. He was really the first evangelical guy to lead a church in this direction. And Highlands Church, we just thought, it's going to be a tipping point and then nothing. Except a bunch of chicken pastors like me that kept wrestling. And then when we finally made the move, it kind of started a group of five or six other churches that made the move with us. And we thought this is going to be a tipping point. And three years later, we're still grinding. We're still looking for that tipping point. And we keep hoping the mainline churches will get it straight. But most of the mainline churches in this town, whose denomination has given them the ability to do it, still are not fully inclusive because it's the Bible Belt. So um, Christianity is diminishing. Christ is not. And this issue, we've got to get straight. And I'm not giving up hope because I believe in the church. But um, it, I keep hoping for that tipping point and people all the time ask me, you know, don't you think it's about to? No, no. This is a grinding slow issue and we need a new reformation and a work of the spirit. I think it's afoot, but we need more. Yeah, Stephen. Given your background, um, how much has your journey informed, let's say, your perception of the voice of God vis-a-vis -vis, uh, paternal versus maternal, masculine versus feminine? And my next question quickly is, how much of your ministry these days, if at all, is directed toward parents, for example, like your own? So the heart of the book is to be able to reach parents as well. However, the ministry that I do is primarily to the LGBT people who are wrestling through their coming out process. Um, the parents that I come in contact with, I usually send over to um, people like Susan Cottrell of Freed Hearts that are doing great work with parents, um, Christian parents that have LGBT kids and have multiple resources and support groups online and everything to help give them the support that they need. So I usually will funnel them that direction so they can get the support they need and I focus my time and attention on really ministering to the LGBT people that are going through their coming out process in a conservative faith community. Um, and as far as your other question, my faith has undergone, a, you know, as I'm sure has yours, a vast deconstruction and reconstruction of theology and continues to because I was immersed in that for 25, you know, 30 years. And so I think I will probably forever be kind of undergoing this transformation and, and reconstruction. And I am okay with that because um, I'm constantly learning, I'm constantly growing, I'm not stagnant um, the, way I, the way I once was when I thought I had all of my theology put together in this nice little box. And it made everything easy because it was all kind of in this box of perfection and yet everything was so certain. And if you have certainty, what do you really need faith for? You've got all the answers already. And so it really didn't require much faith at all to live in that kind of theology. Um, the, the theology that I have now um, is much more reliant and dependent on true faith than I think my previous um, relationship with God was. Um, in regards to the masculine and feminine, that's something I think um, our church and a lot of the ministries that we are a part of have worked um, hard to include a, a more um, broad picture of the um, diversity of God, which I love. Um, I, I, don't have, I, um, I don't have a specific um, lean towards, you know, identifying with God as feminine versus masculine. Um, 
talking about God as masculine doesn't trigger me for any reason, so that's how I kind of tend to lead, but I, I still am very supportive of, of all the diversity of God that um, is brought, and I, I love that people are including that more and more, um, and I think the vast diversity is what a lot of people are missing, um, whether that's masculine and feminine or, um, I don't know, I just think there's so much, so many vast diverse pieces of God that by including LGBT people in the church, we're only seeing more and more of that and seeing more of the beautiful places of God that he um, or she is able to bring to the body of Christ. Yes. Sold. Sold. It's just, I'm very excited to, to read the book, um, and actually this is the, my uh, first return, I guess, in probably over a year. Um, it uh, was pretty ironic that um, I was just sitting listening to music, and an uh, alert came up uh, from Stan about the service tonight. And um, when I looked at it, I hurried up and got my five-year-old son um, in the tub, and we came on. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I actually had a very similar experience. My uh, given name and still my legal name is Charity. Charity. So um, imagine that one. <laughs> um, very similar situation. Um, I had two coming outs um, at 23 um, as uh, gay to my parents, and then at 39, as transgender. Mm -hmm. um, I finally had decided that it was a life or death and uh, mm -hmm. was so suicidal mm -hmm. that um, I knew if I didn't, that it was, I was gonna kill myself mm -hmm. um, and came very, very close. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of it is, like both of you touched on and, and other people, is education. Um, my parents um, are very closed-minded um, we were in church every time the doors were open, um, but there was a whole different situation in our home. And it was that whole keep things quiet, keep it secretive. Um, so at 23, um, when I came out, my mom told me that she hated me um, on Christmas Day. And, um, and that was a couple months after I'd come out. And uh, from there, it was six years. Uh, before I see my parents again. Mm -hmm. And I even went so far because I knew what the results were gonna be if I didn't live the lifestyle that I needed to. Um, I, I got married to a man at 19 years old. Um, and at 20 years old, had a child. Um, I have a 20 year old that I gave birth to. So I can't even imagine, and you know, I, I, there's so many ways that, that I can uh, feel all the stories here mm -hmm. um, and I cannot even imagine as a mother and I can say that as a mother that carried a child and gave birth to a child ever turning my back on my son for anything mm -hmm. and my parents did that to me twice and I can say that it gets easier this is actually the first time I've even teared up and over a year about it. Um, the second time, um, my dad, who is a deacon at a Baptist church in Columbia, um, told me that I was mentally ill and needed a bullet put in my head. 
because people like me shouldn't even be on the earth. A deacon at a church. And all that that did was push me closer to God. And um, it, it's, it, I think a lot of it is education. And unfortunately, you know, I would love to get a copy of your book signed with a message to my parents, but if they won't listen to my story, their own kid, they're not gonna listen to yours. And there's so many resources out there that I thought, okay, you know, I could, I could have a box full right now. Um, and I think that it's, it's gonna take some parents that have lived it, writing books and educating and that have turned, that their views have, have, have turned, you know, to be able to say, you know, I know what you're feeling. Not a kid saying, hey, the, I know what you're feeling. Because I mean, my parents did, they went through it twice. And it's, they're completely humiliated by all of it. Um, and they wouldn't recognize me if they seen me today. The last time they seen me, I had no facial hair, uh, weighed 70 pounds more than I do now. Um, completely different. I could probably be in the store with them and they wouldn't know me. My voice is 10 octaves deeper. So um, I commend you for writing your story um, and educating in any way that you can because that's what I think is going to be huge for us. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm really glad you're here. I think it is stories that will make the difference in people's lives and hearts. And I, I say that even for my own story. I'm like, I don't think it will be me that changes my parents' mind on this issue. It's going to have to be somebody else that comes along their path and somehow um, influences them to take a different look at this. Talk about, for me. before we close, talk about your, you have a foundation, a ministry. Talk a little I bit do. about that. So in the process of writing this book, I've also founded a nonprofit called Beyond that is primarily focused on helping LGBT people through their coming out process, because there's really nothing else there like that right now, um, specifically for those that come from conservative faith communities, because they're at the highest risk for suicide. And so a, a big part of that is for me connecting with these people that are reaching out and saying, this is my story and I'm looking for help, I need support. And we're connecting with them, we're giving them coaching, we're giving them support that they need and connecting them to the available resources so they feel less isolated in their own journey. And so that's a big part of the work that we're doing as we go, you know, um, and even as I go and speak across the nation as we continue this book tour, um, a lot of it is connecting with these people along the way that have reached out to me and, and making sure that they get the support that they need to be able to thrive and to, um, and to do, you know, to be able to be successful, be happy, be live a fulfilling life and know that they are fully and um, completely embraced by God just as they are. So that's a big part of what we're trying to do moving forward and, and um, you know, we're wanting to even add, the, this book tour has been completely self-funded, so um, it's something that uh, a lot of people get the illusion that, oh, you've published a book, so the publishing company is taking care of all this stuff for you, and you're so cool now, and no, not at all. <laughs> and so um, this is something that we've done because we're passionate about it, and so we've done this out of um, our heart because we are, we are passionate about getting this message out to as many people as possible, and so we, can, we continue to want to add more um, events specifically in the South because we've gotten requests from places like um, Houston and Georgia and where they really need this message. And so we really are hoping to add more of those in the future as we get some more um, financial support beneath us and able to move forward with that. Um, but, are you going to yeah. hang around? So Yes, I will be talk. around for anyone that wants to ask questions. The first five people can get a book from my wife. And um, otherwise, you can find it on Amazon as well. And I'll have, um, I've got some cards for anybody that wants to reach out to me personally and email me or uh, find me on social media, any of that kind of thing. So thank you so much.
But the guys are coming. We're going to receive an offering. Throw a little extra in tonight because we want to be able to. It's not in our budget, obviously, these days to have a lot of guest speakers. But we want to be able to bless them and this ministry. So we're going to receive an offering as the ushers are getting ready. You guys are going to sing. Uh, Clara, Amber, let's tell them how much we thank them and bless them for coming tonight. Would you do that?